If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky was once our evening entertainment, but now it's Netflix, iPads, Bluetooth, whatever. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. In this episode, I'm joined by Ada Blair, who I have known for a couple of years remotely. I had the privilege of meeting Ada at a conference in Glasgow a few years ago where we were talking about dark skies and, and how we can make an impact in, in, the, in the UK. And uh, ever since then, I've been watching her work and, and reading her papers. And Ada, I'm really delighted to have you here. So how did you find yourself immersed in the world of dark skies? Okay. Um, well, actually, probably when I was a very young child, so that's how far back my interest goes. I've lived in Scotland all my life. And as a child, I lived quite near Glasgow, which is one of the, the major Scottish cities. And I was, I was basically insomniac as a child. I just <laughs> didn't really need much sleep. I was perfectly happy being awake at night. I just didn't need much sleep. So I spent a lot of time um, looking out my bedroom window. And unfortunately, in those days, right outside my bedroom window, it was one of those old sodium lights that we all hate these days <laughs> with the bright orange glow. So mostly, I didn't get to see much of what was going on in the sky because this thing just dominated it. Well, Glasgow love... isn't isn't the most rural or regional areas of, of Scotland. No, is it? no, absolutely not. And even though we were about five or six miles from Glasgow, you know, the sky glow from Glasgow was still obvious. So I used to love it when this horrible orange sodium light broke down, as it would occasionally, <laughs> because that was my time of beginning to get to see um, <clears throat> well the various things that I've come to love over the years: stars, planets, different um, events. So that was my earliest introduction to dark skies. And then as I grew up and started going hill walking and camping with, with friends and family, I always loved to visit the parts of Scotland where it was extremely dark. So there's one particular area of Scotland called Noidart, and it's often described as Britain's last wilderness. It's, it's very remote, it's in the north um, west. And the skies there were so beautiful, so dark. So again, my interest was, was getting sparked. And then as I became a little bit more financially secure, was able to travel a bit, went to Africa, dark skies in Africa, fabulous. <laughs> so it's been, it's been with me all my life, that, that interest. And when people talked about, when I was a kid, you know, people would say, oh, children are scared of the dark. I, I was never frightened of the dark. I always loved the dark, mm. especially that deep velvety blackness. I loved that, loved that. Mm. And then um, in 2009, a very close friend of mine moved to a place called Sark, which is one of the, the Channel Islands that, that um, is located between England and France. And he said to me, you love it here. It, it's weird. It's different. <laughs> Lots of different interesting customs and habits. But the skies are very dark because there's no outdoor lighting permissible in Sark. And, and I visited the very next year. Couldn't wait to get there. So those, <laughs> I guess that's how my interest developed as a very young child and then laterally spending time outdoors with friends and family and then 
massively ignited by by going to Sark. Mm. It's interesting. You you talk about your your comfort in the night sky as a child, and I re- I really relate to that because I guess my childhood was spent not so much camping, but certainly being very much outdoors at night as a child with my parents and looking at the night sky. And I've often said to people, oh, you know, I just love that comfort of being in in the night sky and feeling that inky blackness sort of envelop me. And and yet that is not everyone's experience. And, And I find it interesting when I hear people, particularly actually from the UK, actually, I've I've heard this said quite a few times that they just, they feel terrified if they don't have light around them and they they step into darkness and they don't know what's happening beyond that boundary. So Mm. I I wonder if it's, it's almost a a nature versus nurture type experience right from the very beginning Mm. where we, yeah, I don't know. uh, I I think that's that's an area I'm really interested in. I think that's a great point. And I remember my father died last year, but I remember a couple of years before he died, talking to him um, about my my little book, Sark in the Dark. It was one of the few books he ever read in his life. Yeah, (laughs) that's lovely. But um, the book was dedicated to my mum and dad. And um, I was talking to him and he read the book and it was great. And I was talking to him about his experience of darkness. And he had just reported to the local council that his local street lighting was broken. And he hated the, the lights being out at night. And I said, but dad, you know, isn't it nice sometimes just being out in the dark and seeing the dark? And he made a great point. He said, but what you have to remember, Ada, the people of my generation, and he was in his 80s then, we were brought up during the Second World War and in the UK during the Blitz. So when there was bombing, um, we had to have complete darkness. We couldn't have lights on at night, no street lights. So for many people of his generation, he said he associated darkness with fear, fear of attack. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and that, that PA, so that, I hadn't um, thought about that. The post, um, what is it? Post-traumatic stress disorder is associated yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Whereas my own son, I mean, he's 30 now, but you know, when he was very young and, and we would go camping, we we quite often would go walking with him during the night and I think it is that nature versus nurture if you're used to spending time in darkness and it's not seen as something to be frightened of obviously with you know caution and letting people know you do have to watch out sometimes at night (laughs) you might fall over something (laughs) if you don't see it um but I think children can enjoy darkness Mm. if the parents are willing to take that risk and allow them to enjoy it that's true. So, Ada, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your studies and how that relates to Sark. And what we, we'll start with your studies and then we'll move on to your papers and then your book that you've mentioned about yep. your dad. Hmm. Yeah, sure. So, hmm. so um, through a kind of circuitous route, I ended up training um, to be a counsellor, to be a psychotherapist uh, about 20 or 24, 25 years ago. And from a very early stage in my career, I was very interested in the impact of environment on mental health. And early on in my career as as a therapist, I was working in quite um, economically deprived areas in Edinburgh. And whereas many of my colleagues would say, oh, people just need to go out into great outdoors, they need to spend time in nature, For many of the people I was working with, nature was maybe a pot plant in their living room. Mm. Nature was a picture of a tree on their living room wall. They weren't close to nature. Is that because they'd never been involved with it before or they didn't have the economy to get out into nature or the environment? What, 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 What put them in that situation? They were generally people who had lived in small cramped houses in urban areas and came from family backgrounds where it wasn't very normal to go out for a walk in a local park. So even though there might have been green areas not too far away from them, um, they they hadn't been encouraged to go there as children. So it wasn't on their radar. It wasn't something that they normally did. 
even though you know it, it would be possible for free obviously just to walk 10 minutes to, to mm. a local park or local woodland it wasn't something they were normally um, used to doing so I became interested in you know how how did they feel if they did go somewhere like that and I, I worked for a number of years with an HIV AIDS project where I took groups of young children teenagers out to rural areas um, for their mental health and to help them cope with complex family situations and just seeing the impact on mood taking them to these places that they wouldn't normally visit was was immense I could see the, the very real impact in a positive way on their mental health so as a therapist I, I was very interested in how um, being in nature can can improve mental health but more and more, I became curious about, you know, what were people fearful of when they were in nature and asking questions about that. Mm. And often people were fearful of, I might have an accident. I might go too far and be, have an accident and then no one will find me. Or I might get too tired. I don't know how far I can walk. Um, mm. Mm. You know, things that maybe many of us will certainly may take for granted. A lot of people were quite fearful of. I guess if you've never flown your wings, never flapped your wings, you don't know if you can fly, do you? No, no, exactly. And there was the whole stranger danger, you know, issue. You know, Mm. what happens if I go outdoors, whether it's at night or during the day, and um, someone comes and, you know, threatens me. Mm. So there was an association with being in nature for some people, being in isolated areas and threat from from strangers. Mm. So... um, yeah, I suppose that was where my first interest in mental health and the outdoors came from, working in the, those areas in Edinburgh. So just to take you back a step, you said you saw the positive impact of people being in nature. What sort of things did you see? With children and teenagers, and this was, this was in the days before mobile phones, but children and teenagers who would be really quite um, withdrawn, who wouldn't speak to the other Um, people on the minibus or on the coach when they went outdoors and started to look around and I was encouraging them you know just look down what's beneath your feet what's around that corner their curiosity got sparked and then they would begin to talk to each other and say have you seen this have you seen that Mm. so I I began to see them sharing their experiences and the journey back on the coach to Edinburgh was always completely different from the journey there that was, hmm. that was the main thing. They would talk to each other. <laughs> hmm. And they would be sitting on the coach with, um, you know, some leaves they picked up, some stones they wanted to show their mum when they got home. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So that was the biggest impact, the, the communication that was sparked with shared experience. Yeah, that actually makes me feel quite um, emotional to think that, that that world of opportunity that is right there and that it means so much to them, or at least it opened that window that it meant something to them in that moment. Mm. Yeah, 
Mm. And then one, one, one weekend we decided we'd do a residential for, well, for three days on, a, on an island with a group of teenagers and we took them there in Scotland and we said to them, you were going to do some night walking. We're, we're going to go out at night. We're not just going to do it during the day. And there was such a mixture of excitement and fear. So we, we did go out that night and we walked and luckily it was a, it was a great um, clear night. It was a moonless night and it was very clear. So we were able to walk along and I'm, I'm not an astronomer and I've got you know, some knowledge of astronomy, but not... <laughs> Nothing and like you. And appreciate. No, well, I'm not. I know I'm like you. I've got an appreciation, and I can, I can enjoy it, but I don't know what I'm looking at necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, he, and I remember one, one sort of pointing up and saying, "What do you think that is?" And it was Mars, um, and it was very red and orange that night. Mm. I said, "What do you think that is?" And there was all kinds of stories about, oh, maybe it's a ball of fire coming from another planet, or, you know, maybe it's fireworks. And then I said, well, you know what? It could be any of those things, but actually it's a planet and it's a planet called Mars. And, mm. you know, just tiny little bits of information spark such a lot of interest. How old were these kids? They were between the ages of 10 to 13, 14. Mm. I... I just could imagine how exciting that was for them. And, and I'd love to know what they where they are and what that memory is for them yeah. now. Yeah. Mm. And what, what we noticed as well is when they first started walking, they were really quite nervous. They were scared they were going to fall over. They were going to fall in a ditch. Um, or they thought, oh, I'll get too cold. What if it rains? You know, and trying to reassure them don't worry, you know, we're here, we, there's some adults here, we'll take care of things, just enjoy yourself. <laughs> and and gradu- Because these were city kids, these were children who were not used to being outdoors and certainly not in nature at night time. Mm. But, you know, I hear those same uh, concerns from adults in their 70s. Yeah. You know, I, I take people on groups, you know, on tours and we go to dark places and I say it's perfectly flat and we've walked this several times and we know, you know, we know if you've got any concerns, just slow down and grab my hand and I'll walk with you. Um, and, and so there, there is an innate fear of the dark, whether it's mm. the, the terrain or anything else. I think for some people there is that, that fear. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, and I guess those experiences working in that, that project, um, I always kept it in the back of my head that at some point in the future, I'd like to, as a therapist, um, bring in more of the outdoors into the room and maybe bring the, the person out outdoors. <laughs> so that, that became something I, I became interested in. Because as, as a therapist, mostly we work in a small room face-to-face with another person and it's a box <laughs> devoid of nature yeah mm-hmm. usually you know if if you're lucky you're in a room where maybe you've managed to bring in some stones or some some flowers maybe you have some pictures on the walls of some you know natural environments but generally nature is seen as out there not not in in the room and yet when people talk about their environment um they often don't consider the sky as part of that environment. That's what I began to notice. Mm. Mm. I would, I would, sorry. On you no, 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 no. Just keep going, please. Mm. Because I often noticed in my work that people would say, you know, my, my living situation, it's really difficult. The relationship I'm in is terrible. I'm in a horrible environment. Um, I'm, I'm, I try to go for walks outside in nature, but they saw nature as what I would call green grounded nature. They didn't really look at the sky much. <laughs> mm. It was very much what was right under their feet or very nearby. And between 8am and 5pm. Yeah, rarely yeah. at night. Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess that's where I was sort of thinking of, um, there's, a, there's a big part of the, particularly the International Dark Sky Association work that they do in, in America and a lot of the, the national parks coming together and talking about parks after dark because mm. people mm. just think of being in the national park, you know, 
until sunset and then and it's a bit like conservation the, the world of conservation and preservation seems to stop at sunset and yeah. we, we don't carry that through into the evening which is part of the stuff that I do but mm-hmm. so how did this then carry into Sark you, you you found yourself on this funny little island in the middle of the channel in yeah, <laughs> between France and then and England and what was your first impression my first impression on arriving on Sark was how wonderful it was because we, we actually arrived um, probably about six o'clock at night and I think the first time my partner and I went to Sark it was in springtime so it was still it still got dark quite early on and the only you can't fly to Sark there's no airport there's no airstrip so you have to get on a ferry which takes an hour from another island and you arrive there and it feels like a real journey to get there and you arrive there and you get on this thing called the toast rack the ferry lets you off the toast rack is a tractor pulling a thing that looks like a metal toast rack (laughs) (laughs) so the passengers clamber onto this toast rack and another tractor comes and takes your luggage and it takes you up this huge hill called Harbour Hill. So I immediately had this sense of, I'm coming somewhere really different and really special. And it was beginning to get dark, and right away I looked up and I could see already more stars than I'd ever seen before in my life. Mm. So that was my introduction. (laughs) So everything my friend had promised me about the dark sky, I I got the evidence right right away. (laughs) And... I visited first, that was 2010, and that was the same year that I began a master's degree in cultural astronomy with the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. And I, even at that stage, I was beginning to think, you know, what's my dissertation project going to be in a year or so? And quite early on, on SARC, I thought of myself as someone who wasn't afraid of the dark, who could quite easily walk around in the dark, but the darkness in Sark was something else. <laughs> it was <laughs> at night. It was on a, on a dark night. It was so dark. I'd never come across that level mm. of darkness. Because they've got no uh, artificial light at night at all on the island, do they? Is that uh, right? There's absolutely no no outdoor street lighting. There is actually only one small street on Sark called the Avenue. There are no other streets on Sark. Everything's tracks or small roads. There's no um, outdoor lighting. Um, the hotel, small hotels, there's a small number of hotels. They're not allowed to have lots of kinds of lighting. They have to have IDA, you know, approved lighting. Mm-hmm. There are no cars on Sark. There's no motorised vehicles other than a small number of tractors. And they're only allowed to operate within certain hours. So it's very, very different. And... I loved the fact that it was so dark. It was very safe to walk around. And the only place that's ever lit up at night really is this small street called the Avenue. At Christmas time, the locals have outdoor street decorations for I think it's one week. It may not even be as long as one week. And that's the only time they have outdoor lights on. <laughs> <laughs> you must blind everybody with that week. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So very quickly, when you go to Sark, you can, you can see right away who are the newbies, who are the people that are you know, new to the island, finding their, literally finding their feet in the dark, <laughs> and, who, and who are the ones who've been around a while. Those of us who are going for the first time at night, we tend to go around with head torches. Um, but actually, quite quickly, you stop using the head torches. The more you become accustomed to being out in the dark, you know, you get your night vision after, what is it, 20 minutes, half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you start to feel much more confident walking around. Mm. And it actually becomes a bit of an invasion when you do see someone with a light, I find. Once you've got used to that comfort zone, you think, oh, stop. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. There's a great... Can I, can I read you a quote? Just yes, now. please. Yeah. I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to my research, but just on that theme of, you know, the light and what happens, there was um, a woman on Sark who I spoke to a lot um, called Annie Dassinger. And Annie um, was the 
the main mover and shaker between the, the astronomical society that grew up on SARP. And she spoke once about being out at night. And when she was walking, she says, watching stars, meteor showers and comets connect humanity to its environment, the animals and birds, what mankind does now with flooding the world with artificial lighting, it's creating eclipses for them. Mm. On a black rainy night on Sark, I've gone home with a torch and been careful just to shine it on the road because I, as I pass, if there's a bird in the hedge, it will wake up. Oh. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> That's such a beautiful quote and it just shows such an awareness of her surroundings and, and yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Wow. <laughs> You've almost brought me to tears. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your paper. How did it come to you? You said you were thinking right at the beginning what you thought you, your dissertation would be, but was it what you expected it would be when you actually produced it? And what, what did you personally learn out of it? I, I became aware that when I was walking at night on Sark, no matter what my mood had been like at the start of the walk, whether I was with other people or on my own, I always felt more relaxed, calmer, happier by the time I got back to where I was living. There was something, I began to realize more and more, there was something about being out at night, feeling safe, feeling I'm um, part of something much bigger than myself, looking up, noticing what was going on in the sky that had a really positive effect on my mental well-being. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And I became curious about whether other people felt the same. And I was talking to friends on Sark, uh, my partner, and they, were, they would say, yeah, yeah, I, I feel that too. So that's where I began to have this interest in what must it be like for people who've lived here all their lives? Uh, and, you know, do people who haven't lived here so long very quickly notice this, the same phenomenon? Do they also feel it improves mental well-being? So they, that was the germs of, of the research, chatting to people and then realising, doing a bit of looking around, what research was around, couldn't find much at all. And being in touch with people from the International Dark Sky Association, um, should mention that SARC became, was awarded dark sky status in 2011. Probably mm. know that. And it was the first was the island. First, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was, there was already um, quite an interest amongst the inhabitants on Sark in the, the preciousness of their dark sky. They recognised it was something special. Mm. So it was actually really easy to engage people on the island in conversations about the dark sky. Partly because they were already talking about it all the time with each other. <laughs> mm. And I, I, I loved that you would go into the local shop and you know maybe the night before there had been a meteor shower and everyone in the shop would be talking about it. 
And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they would have gathered um, in family groups or social groups to go to specific areas and start to watch sky events. It was a communal um, neighborly way of maintaining links within a very small island community. How many people live on Sark? Um, generally, all year round, between five to six hundred. But between May to September, that massively increases because they normally, well, it's different right now and with COVID, but they normally get a lot of tourism. So it can increase to 10, 15,000 um, over mm -hmm. the year at certain points. But it's a very small island and um, people know each other very well. So, mm. so yeah, I got, I got very interested in this idea of the, communal, the communality of um, the experiences of the dark sky, the way people shared experiences and, and told others about what to look out for. You know, they would say just in passing to a neighbour, oh, you know, um, it, it's tonight, um, the International Space Station, we're going to get a great view tonight at such and such a time. Mm. <laughs> there were lots of conversations on a day-to-day -day basis um, about sky events in a, in a way that I'd never noticed before anywhere else. Well, I, I have, I've um, written a couple of papers, not papers officially, but just, you know, articles for newspapers or whatever. And some of the comments that I've had most feedback on is the question, do you know what phase of the moon we're in tonight? Mm -hmm. And I would say that the majority of people that are living in Sydney right now would have no idea what it is. And yet it sounds like everybody on Sark would know. Most people on SART would know um, they would also be more likely to be able to recognise planets. Um, mm -hmm. they, would, they would know when, you know, such and such a meteor shower was due, the Pleiades, they would, they would know what that was. Um, I mean, I'm not claiming that they're all, you know, astronomical experts. They're not. You know, some of them, their knowledge is, is, is quite limited, but there's... Many, many but they're things. in touch with what's happening. There's a feeling yeah. of what's up in the sky and what, you know, tonight could be a pretty night to go out and have a look, yeah, even. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. So that, that's where the interest came, noticing that people just talked about it as a regular part of their everyday lives. So I decided I would, I would base my dissertation on that. Um, and so what I was really interested in was the, the, the effects on mental well-being of living in a dark sky community. And if that was different from people living in other areas. So in 2014, um, I decided I would start doing some interviews. So I did a mixture of um, doing face-to-face -face interviews with a small group of people on SARC. Some had lived there all their lives, some were more recent um, residents. And I also conducted a focus group with members, members of the astronomical group on SARC. Um, I also invited people to email me responses to my questionnaire. So I, I got Were people keen to support you? Oh, 100%. <laughs> there wasn't a single person that I asked if they were willing to be interviewed who turned me down. <laughs> In fact, I wanted to interview a lot more, but my dissertation supervisor actually said, hang on, hang on, this is only a master's dissertation. <laughs> you know, you've got to contain it a bit. So um, I, I used a series of open questions because I wanted to make sure that people had lots of opportunity to talk about their experiences. But I guess, I mean, what I was, what I was really interested in, and I'll maybe just sort of mention the different headings. Basically, I was, my main interest was why is the sky not often incorporated into our idea of nature? Lots of definitions of nature don't even include the sky. So I was interested in this idea of this missing sky factor in the research. Lots of research about the impacts of green nature on mental health, but nothing much at all about the sky. So I wanted to find out, you know, what meaning did the people on SARC attach to the sky, if any? Um, you know, what's, what was their sky knowledge like? How much did they know about what they saw? Mm. Um, and watching the sky with other people on SARC, did, did that or did that not help build and maintain family and community connection? 
And I was interested in, you know, were there particular myths and stories attached to the sky in the Channel Islands? You know, there's lots of cultures and societies throughout the world that have lots of sky stories. I wondered were there any on Aboriginal top? Australians have the emu in the absolutely. sky, for example. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. So mm. these are the kind of interest, interests I had. Um, I was interested a lot in how people felt about being in the dark on Sark. You know, was it a universal fearlessness or were some people still scared of being outdoors in the dark? And another area I was really interested in was um, childhood memories of the sky. Because a lot of people who come to Sark for the first time made comments like, oh, this is how I remember the sky as a child. This is what it was like growing up. And the sky's not like that where I live now. Mm, mm. So being on Sark evoked a lot of nostalgia for childhood memories of the night sky. Mm. So I was interested in, in these areas. And, and also wondering what the people in Sark thought about astronomical tourism. Because there was quite a push on Sark to try to become more financially viable. Um, it's always a challenge trying to keep you know, businesses going on Sark. And after they got dark sky status, a lot of people were interested in encouraging tourists to come to bring in revenue. Mm. And I, won I wondered what local people might think about that, if they maybe saw that as a threat to their way of life or, you know, I was curious, that was another area I asked about. Mm -hmm. So let's delve into some of those findings. What, what, and because I'm, well, I have a background in tourism, what did people think about astrotourism? Was it, was it threatening? The vast majority of people were very interested and welcoming of the idea because they wanted their, live, their lifestyle to be sustainable, so they, want, they needed more revenue. They're actually very welcoming to tourists in general on Sark. And they knew that really what it would do if they could get more astronomical tourism would, be, would help them through that part of the year where there's not usually many tourists the winter. Not that many people go to Sark in wintertime between October to February but they were going to try and encourage more astronomical tourism during those times when the skies would be clearer and darker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So most people saw it, most people definitely saw it as a positive. Um, and so here's, here's a typical quote. Um, this is someone who's, who was a teacher on SARC. She said, um, we're a dark sky island and it's inspiring people to come here. <clears throat> the best star viewing is in winter when we don't have to tend to have tourists. So it could only be a good thing. It would bring business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, someone else did, um, you know, voice a little bit of um, worry about it. But then he quickly said, the tourists who would come here, the astronomical tourists, they would be the same people who come to appreciate the wildflowers. They appreciate that's what makes the dark sky possible, no pollution. Mm. Well, yeah, there was pretty much universal um, appreciation of, of you know, what it would mean to have more tourism. Mm. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ada, but I <coughs> vaguely remember that when you did your presentation in Scotland, you talked about naughty tourism. Was that you? What kind that, of that, that they were the naughty, like Enid Blyton sort of tourism, where oh, oh. Was that, that people wanted those experiences, and this sort of, sort yeah. of linking the whole thing with astrotourism and nostalgia, yeah. that they wanted that childhood experience where they could lie under the stars with a picnic blanket and scones and lashings of cream. Um, and that was what, that's what they did with their parents, and they wanted to replicate that with their own family or... Yeah, that's absolutely right. Mm. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the marketing, I haven't looked at it recently, but a lot of the marketing um, used um, by Sark Tourism intentionally evokes this nostalgia for childhood. So there's a quote that I think it's still on their website. They talk about the Sark experience as being the stuff of the famous five and swallows yes. and Amazons. Wonderful memories are made here by adults and children alike. So, yeah, there's a positive encouragement um, and, and it really taps into people's remembrances of, you know, being out, 
as a child with parents on a picnic blanket, a lot of these things maybe that are slightly less common these days because there's lots of other choices of how to spend time with children. Mm. So Sark Tourism really tapped into that, that encouragement. And, you know, there's boat trips, you can go on treasure hunts on the islands, <laughs> you can go for cream teas, you know, there's a lot of very traditional um, activities like that go on. Mm. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious to know, I've got two questions in my mind, so I don't know which one to ask, but what's been the follow-up to your paper? And I, I have to say, I, I had a copy of it in front of me and I've, I've, I've <clears throat> mislaid the paper. What, what is your paper called? So there's been various different kind of versions of it, but probably the, the definitive one is it's, um, it, it was featured in the Journal of Skyscape Archaeology. And the paper was called An Exploration of the Role That the Night Sky Plays in the Lives of the Dark Sky Island Community of Sark. So a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one I, I had in front of me. So... Yeah. Um, What's been the follow-up to that? Has there been a compare and contrast perhaps with people in cityscapes? Has there been a, a follow-up from other scientists and researchers looking at, you know, I don't know. I'm just curious to know what's happened since. Well, What have you done since? Yeah, on, on a personal level, I mean, my, my interest more recently has been in, I guess, on, on a small scale kind of campaigning within certain institutions, educational institutions and um, local councils to look at improving lighting in urban areas, to improve the views of the night sky. For people who maybe don't have the economic resources to travel very far, they can't go to Sark, but maybe they can have a Sark light experience <laughs> somewhere closer to home. So I've been engaged in um, writing lots of letters, you know, doing lots of advocating for changing um, lights in, in certain areas. I've also been in dialogue with a number of scholars and researchers over the world to see um, if there is anything, any other work being done on dark mm -hmm. skies and mental health. And sadly, if you Google... Um, dark skies and mental well-being sadly the first things that come up are me because there's I mean I say sadly because I had actually really been hoping that you know my research was done a few years ago there's been virtually nothing done in that area since then that's specifically about mental health and dark sky there's been a lot of research done on how light pollution can impact human health as, as you know mm. um there's a lot of research being done on how it can affect um, animal behaviour. But in terms of human mental health, there's still very little. And I've been in contact with and, and spoken at conferences with Tim Edensor. I don't know if you've come across Tim Edensor. I know the name. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Tim works. He's, he's kind of mainly, um, I think he's still at Me Manchester Metropolitan University. He's very interested in light and darkness and... Oh, is he the cultural geolo geo geologist, geographist? Cultural geographer, that's right. Yes, yeah. I have met him. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've spoken with him a bit um, and I've, I've looked into also, there's been some papers recently done, well, not that recently, again, two or three years ago on blue water and spending time near water and the impact on mental health, which has got some crossover with dark sky. But the honest answer is I have been quite pressured with my therapeutic work and I've had less time to, to get to dive into more research. My, my interest now is on urban areas and how access to dark skies can be in, increased in urban areas. Um, and I'm also interested in accessibility, you know, people who may have mobility issues or mental health issues themselves that make it more difficult for them to access the outdoors and, and you know, and dark skies, how we can improve mm -hmm. access in the national parks in Scotland, for instance. So it, it, it kind of reiterates an idea that I've, I've had, particularly through COVID, where 
um, we've seen people who are stuck in their houses and not been able to get out. And for some people, that's not even a house with a veranda or any way of, you know, getting out to, to nature really very easily, um, subject to the lockdown laws. But uh, a bit like you, I've been talking to lighting designers about ways we can create urban areas that at least have dark spaces in communities yeah. that people could go out to and appreciate. Uh, and and I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, one of the hats I wear is, is with the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance. And yeah. we were asked by... Um, the Environment Department of Australia to run a, a, an activity to, to, to raise awareness of light pollution guidelines. And in the height of COVID, we ran an activity where we asked people to go out on their driveway or on their veranda and look at the stars and see how well they could see them. And we mm -hmm. thought we might get 2,000 people at the very most, but we got 11,000 people sign up. Oh, fantastic. With, with about four weeks notice. So I think there is this hunger now that people started to realize that there is a day and a night and that we are, you know, that there is an opportunity to get outside and, and be outside. And I'm really trying to encourage ways to, to, um, to do that personally. So I guess that was why I was so very keen to speak with you and, and, and hear what's going on. And, and, and particularly in this time where I think people are struggling, you know, the COVID is really, locked us down not just physically but mentally and maybe this is a top opportunity to get out there and, and look at more of the stars and more of the night sky and I, I hope so and I, I know in my own area I live I live not that far from Edinburgh but during the the lockdown that we had that was a very tight lockdown back in March April May lots of people in my own neighborhood would walk during the day much more than they normally would even though we're in a very green area lots of woodland the, you know, the numbers of people walking was, was, it exploded, it was massive. And yet, if I went out walking at night, I saw virtually nobody. So even in a really safe small town um, where, and there were hardly any cars on the roads because no one was supposed to be driving anywhere at that point, I was amazed that there weren't more people walking around at night. So just anecdotally, you know, and on a small scale basis, I started talking to people about, you know, well, you know, it's lovely at night and if you went out, you might see this, you might see that. So I've noticed there's still quite a reluctance, especially for people that live in towns and cities. There's still a fear of think about what might happen to them. What, you know, what, what, who's going to be out there? Who are the bogeys? Who are the monsters that might be lying in wait when, as we know, and a lot of the research shows this, that, you know, there's many more crimes happen in many, many areas during daytime than during the night. Or, or brightly lit places as and well. Exactly. And if it's a brightly lit place, it's probably even more likely that it's <laughs> going to be. So that's mm -hmm. another area that I'm, I'm kind of getting into, you know, in small local communities, how do you encourage people? And maybe that means, you know, you do some guided walks with people. That's on the back burner. <laughs> as a therapist, I'm encouraging people to, to go outside and to, you know, drink in the... Um, the air, look up at the sky if they're having a bad day. Because mm. when we're locked down, the sky is not locked down. We can stand right on our doorstep and look up and it's it's wide open, isn't it? Mm. it, it I, I don't know if I've shared this with the listeners before, but I had an experience where I invited Andy Thomas to come and speak at a conference. And he's... Australia's and well most well-known astronaut and this gentleman was sort of standing at the side and kept saying I really want to meet Andy I really want to meet Andy and I said oh okay and so finally there, there was the queue had gone and he wanted to talk to him and what had happened was that Andy Thomas had had a few minutes of airtime through ham radio right. and this gentleman had been very depressed for a very long time and had seriously considered suicide mm. and there was something that Andy said about looking down at the earth and looking out at the night sky and seeing the bigger picture of the universe that mm. changed this person's life forever and he went on and started you know studying you know astronomy etc and I often think of that just how that 
the night sky can change so many lives for so many reasons. And whether it's that you discover the insects that are flying around the light poles or, you know, the birds that are calling in the middle of the night or that you see the stars, there's something there for everybody, really. Or that you remember that childhood experience that you had with your mum and dad. You know, there's, yeah. um, it's, it's very emotive. Mm. Yeah. And I, I certainly came across that, you know, many, many times on, on SART, people telling me about, you know, how much they've been impacted by seeing something that in the sky that shifted their perception, that shifted their mood that day. And I'll see if I can, I can find this quote because it's another really um, lovely one. It was someone um, who didn't know much about what to look for in the sky because, you know, I think sometimes people think, oh, if I go out for a walk at night, and I look up at the sky, I should be able to recognise things. And, and I, I was kind of interested in this idea of sky knowledge. And this um, woman who was a former night carriage driver on Sark. So Sark has horse-driven carriages that sometimes oh, take lovely. people <laughs> drive at night. Mm. She was a former night carriage driver. And she said, it's a bit like the Dawn Chorus. You can listen like you could to an orchestra. It's just a load of sound, which is very pleasing. But the more you understand that's a blackbird, that's a robin, that's a thrush, the more you start getting it, appreciating the instruments. Sometimes it's nice just to forget all that and use your ears and enjoy. And it's the same as the night sky. If you can name constellations and think about things, that adds to it, but it's not necessary. Mm. So I, I guess that's what I try and encourage as well. You know, you don't have to know anything about the name of what you see, just go out and look up and enjoy and see what happens. <laughs> Ada, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. So I'm going to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your research and your experiences, but more those personal experiences that people have allowed you to share as well. And uh, hopefully that sparks some interest in others to get out and look at the night sky. So thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you, Marmy. Thanks very Thank much. You. Okay, bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.